gentlemen, welcome, as always, to Bardflies, a podcast about finding more productive ways of channeling your anger than trying to conquer vast swaths of mainland France. This week, we close out Shakespeare's second historical tetralogy with the rousing rhetoric of Henry V. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 20, The Prattle of Agincourt. What just happened? Immobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Will, can you get us started on this one by telling us what happens in this fine piece of dramaturgy? I would be happy to do so, James. So, in the first of many dramatic and comedic gambits in Henry V, our play begins with a chorus driving through the fourth wall and asking the audience to use their imaginations on the plain stage as the players tell the story of Prince Hal, now King Henry V, as he takes the throne and goes to war against the hated French. The cause of this war? Well, it's a little bit complicated. Without testing the patience of our dear Bardflies listeners, the first act of this play features a posse of bishops who are afraid that Henry will confiscate the church's property and therefore urge him to go to war against France to reclaim his stolen birthright. The Archbishop of Canterbury reveals to Henry in a lengthy speech that traces the lineage of the French and English royal families that he should occupy the throne in France, based on a tenuous analysis of the royal family trees going way way, way back. Now convinced that he is the legitimate heir to France, Henry lays out his claim but receives a response from the Dauphin, who haughtily rejects Henry's pretensions and sends him a ton of treasure, a chest full of tennis balls, so that Henry can play a game more fit for a man or boy of his stature. Galled, Henry vows a response and makes preparations for war, convinced that his kingdom is secure at home. As Henry mobilizes his forces, the focus shifts to some of the rapscallions he once palled around with when he was under the wing of Sir John Falstaff, who has recently died. These young men prepare for war, while a coterie of nobles, including the Earl of Cambridge, conspire against Henry and plan to assassinate him at Southampton before he sets sail for France. Henry exposes the plot via a clever ploy, and then promptly has the traitors arrested, revealing a steely nerve, sophistication, and a Machiavellian streak we did not quite see from him when he was merely Prince Hal. The English army, backed by Welsh and Scottish soldiers, arrives in France and lays siege to the city of Harfleur, with Henry in the vanguard, urging his soldiers onward. Despite initially being repulsed by the French defenders, Henry rallies the troops and urges them into the breach, or to close up the wall with our English dead. He threatens to dash the skulls of the city's infants against its walls and to rape the women inside the town, and Harfleur promptly surrenders, but Henry's forces are so worn down by the ordeal that Henry makes a strategic decision to march on Calais instead of Paris. Meanwhile, the French king and his son, the Dauphin, raise a massive army to crush the invaders at the town of Agincourt. Encamped around the town, on the eve of the battle, Henry disguises himself as a commoner and wanders among his soldiers, trying to gauge their opinions of their lord. He prays for their valor and exchanges jokes and pledges with the men, referring to himself as Harry Leroy. Very original. How. The next morning, on the feast day of St. Crispian, Henry rallies his nobles with a stirring speech to his band of brothers, who stand massively outnumbered five to one against the French horde. 
In his renowned speech, he states that their victory will be compounded by the great odds they faced, and then refuses to surrender to a French envoy who asks him to ransom his army's lives. Battle ensues, with the French declaring soon that all is lost. In the skirmishes following the main events of the battle, Henry discovers that some of his cousins have been killed. The French have also looted the English baggage train and killed the group of young pages who were guarding it. This enrages Henry and leads him to repeat an order to execute all of his French prisoners. Ultimately, 10,000 French soldiers die to 29 Englishmen. The chorus appears again at this point to apologize for the imprecise figures. Let's not let some quibbling facts interfere with the story, folks. In the final act of the play, set some time later, Henry and the King of France seek to finalize a treaty that recognizes Henry's sovereignty in exchange for preserving certain privileges for the French noble family. To consummate the deal, literally and figuratively, Henry is introduced to the king's daughter, Princess Catherine, who barely speaks English. In a turn to romantic comedy, Henry pitches woo and bad French to her bad English and wins her heart despite having killed many of her relatives just a few years earlier. As the court rejoices, the chorus reappears to tell the audience that Henry won the war with France, but reigned for only a few short years before dying and leaving the throne to his young son, Henry VI, under whom the realm slid into a bloody civil war. Thank you, Will. And uh, let me also compliment you for not calling out your pun when you referred to Henry as being galled by the chest of tennis balls. Don't think I didn't observe that. Well, look, you know, uh, you don't want to, you don't want to call too much attention to your clever puns uh, in the act. It's not becoming. <laughs> Fair enough. So James, I wanted to get your take on this play. We're reading it on the, the heels of a bunch of different history plays. We read the Henry the sixth plays. We've read Richard the second, the Henry the fourths and everything else. This is a very entertaining piece, lots of epic set-piece battles, lots of great speeches. Why do you think this comes at this point in Shakespeare's career when he's a fairly established figure? You know, does this show evolution? Is this a different kind of history play, or is it more analogous to the things that we've read earlier? So, (laughs) the question you ask is, well, let me just back up and say, I think certainly of the history plays— Maybe not of like all of Shakespeare's work in general, but certainly of the history plays. Before we started this project, Will, this was the history play that I was the most familiar with. I don't know if that's true for you. And a lot of a lot of that, I think, came from, you know, the famous 1989 Branagh film. But when we were doing the Henry VI plays, I remember wondering, well, why did he focus on Henry VI instead of Henry V, That's which seems like such a more compelling story. And as I've been thinking about it in reading, I think there is a reason for it in reading this play. But I also have a couple alternate takes. So let me give you my three different takes for why this might have been. And you can tell me what you think is most convincing, or if you think it's something else entirely, or, you know, or maybe one of these things will spark something in you that you want to talk about. So as I was thinking about this, I basically was able to think of three possible reasons for why Henry V ends up being essentially, well, the last history play that he writes, right? I mean, he writes Henry VIII at the very end of his career, but in terms of the body of the history plays, this really is it. And I thought of one reason that I would describe as political, one that I would describe as commercial, 
and one that I would describe as dramatic. And I, to me, the dramatic reason not to tip my hand is what I think is the most compelling. But that's also from like my perspective as someone who works in movies, basically. So the political reason is the Henry the Sixth, Richard the Third cycle is obviously like in history closer to Shakespeare's time. And by virtue of that, but also by virtue of the fact that that cycle ends with Richard III being defeated by Henry Tudor, who's the founder of the Tudor dynasty, which is, of course, the dynasty that is in power when Shakespeare's writing. Perhaps that's a more politically both relevant, but also most likely to gain him political patronage, you know, when he's earlier in his Mm. career. So that's one possible reason. That's like kind of the cynical reason, I guess. The second reason is very tied to that, which is sort of a commercial reason, which is again, again has to do with that history, but is maybe more in the, in the sense of, well, it's closer in time. Maybe this is something that like audiences are more familiar with and are more interested in because it's recent history. You know, in the same way that I think today we might be more inclined to watch something that's about World War II than about the Civil War or the Revolutionary War just because it's it's closer and more familiar and like feels more relevant mm-hmm. to people's day-to-day lives. And the final one, and this is the one that I personally like and, and think is probably true, and it's why I'm going to spend the most time talking about it, is because like if you think about these stories or these histories from the perspective of drama, if you think about the Henry VI story, right, you've got Henry VI, who's this weak king, mm-hmm. who's not really interested in ruling, You've got Humphrey, who's this noble but ineffective proxy for the king, who's trying to serve the kingdom but is really ineffective. And then you've got this coterie of scheming nobles who are scheming both against the king and against each other, Mm. right? Not to mention the drama of you're losing the war in France. So I think, you know, while that is chaotic, I think there's the potential for a lot of conflict there. Right. And that can lead into the civil wars, you know, the Wars of the Roses, the rise of Richard III, the villainy of Richard, and into the bloodletting that can only end with the rise of the Tudor dynasty. And we're supposed to view mm-hmm. that as this great thing. Right. So I, th- I think there's just a there's a lot of potential for drama and conflict. Whereas if you think about the Henry V story, like if you if you leave aside the preceding plays, you know, the Richard II and the two Henry IV plays. I think what you see is you basically see a king who is incredibly successful. Yes, for a relatively short period of time, but essentially just succeeds at everything that he turns his hand to. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you, we saw that a little bit actually with the Edward III, right, that he did um, or what he was involved in. And that play, if you remember, was incredibly boring. And I think we both have it as our, our lowest ranking play. <laughs> so, you know, there is this thing where I think Actually, the most successful people and events that on their face are just wildly successful actually do not necessarily make for great drama. You know, I was in this regard, and I'm, I'm going to offend a few people when I say this, but like a comparison that came to mind in thinking about this was the difference between a movie like Patton and a movie like Lawrence of Arabia, right? Mm. Where I think Patton is basically a boring, not very interesting movie. And this is part of that problem, right? Where both of those movies, both Patton and Lawrence of Arabia, are about these epic characters who succeeded almost everything they do, 
ultimately, Lawrence of Arabia is a tragedy about disillusionment because Lawrence realizes that actually he's not all that special. Whereas, you know, you get to the end of Patton and it's like you're basically left with this feeling of, oh, he was great and he was kind of let down by these other people around him. So anyway, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. But I, I would say to me, I think it's because it's only at this point where he's in his in his career, having written all those early histories, having done Richard II, that then Shakespeare was able to find a way to make Henry's story dramatic and compelling, you know, in a way that really separates it from Edward III, right? Which is that he he turns it into a story about the education of a king you know, and, and into this sort of national project. So I don't know. What do you think of all that? Yeah, I, I kind so of went it, on there for a little while. No, but. no, no. It's it's good. Um, so taking a step back for a second with this play, one of the things that, you know, you bring up about Edward Third, and would be true of this play if you didn't have the great speeches and the somewhat subversive interjections of the chorus it would be a little bit dramatically inert, to be perfectly honest with you. It reminds me of the film, the Tim- Timothy Chalamet, Chalamet, I always forget his name. I am probably I believe it is Chalamet, but... I believe it's Chalamet, yes, with Joel Edgerton as sort of the Falstaff character. And it's kind of a, a retelling of the back end of Henry IV and Henry V in a sort of gritty reboot kind of way. And the film's okay, but basically, as it tries to tell the story of Henry V... The Timothy Chalamet character, who is Henry, is good at everything he does. He doesn't really face any significant obstacles. He has to deal with the Dauphin, who's terrible, and is played in a great heel turn by Robert Pattinson. But Timothy Chalamet is basically just killing all the bad guys, gets the girl, everything works out for him. And it's not terribly interesting to watch in that respect. And I think if you actually take a look at the plot of this play, well, what actually happens, right? Henry V decides he has this claim to France. He's insulted by the Dauphin. He feels literally like everything's secure at home, goes overseas, but first stops these conspirators in a way that just is sort of, he's comically overpowered against these kind of bumbling guys that are easily entrapped by him before they try and assassinate him. Then when he goes overseas... You know, first battle, they take some punches, they get kind of worn down, but he ultimately wins, and then he marches to Agincourt, and the real the real challenge that he faces is that he's outnumbered, and they play up that for a bit. But if you're the audience, you know how that's going to end. So if you're if you're watching this, even in Elizabethan London at the you know in the playhouses, you know how this one is going to end. So in some ways. There's a level in which this play is the ultimate historical fan service where you get to watch a true, honest-to-God English hero win all the battles, get the girl, and ride into the sunset. But on the other side of it, and this is what makes it kind of delightfully subversive in a way, is Shakespeare's commentary on it also makes you a little bit uneasy. Uh, Not just about Henry as a character, but ultimately where this is going, because the chorus's final lines are literally about how Henry V's reign is brief but glorious, and then the country falls into civil war. Make sure you buy tickets for my revival of the Henry VI plays through Richard III, which is a nice little plug in there by Shakespeare. So there's, there's this kind of interesting angle where you can read this one either as a 
truly sincere appreciation of English patriotism, and I think it is absolutely that. And you can also read it as this kind of sly undercutting of some of the triumphalist narrative at the Mm -hmm. same time. And I think that's what makes it kind of interesting or more interesting to somebody who's reading it. Now, of course, some people are going to watch this or read this and only be drawn to the patriotic parts, and that's for good reason. But there's also this other level that I think adds a lot of ballast. I I think that's true. I I also would, I think, will complicate the patriotic stuff a little bit, right? In that I, I think that it's doing something more complicated, even in that patriotic stuff. It is doing something more complicated than an Edward III, right? Where Edward III is just that weird stuff with the Countess aside is really just a celebration of English military virtue. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas this play, I think, even if you look past the... I think it would be fair to just to say like the ambivalence of Shakespeare about some of the stuff that's going on here, I think it's still doing something or trying to say something about leadership and about nation building sort of. And I I, I think that that word sounds too trite or or doesn't quite encapsulate what I'm trying to say, Mm -hmm. but there's something more to this than just let's celebrate the great military virtue of our military hero, Henry V, right? There's Mm -hmm. something in here about the idea of unifying the people of the nation and not just the people, but also the estates of the nation in harmony. Yeah, so to to jump in there, actually, I think the chorus reveals this in various ways, and we'll get more into the, the chorus further on in the discussion, but the chorus is literally setting up each act of the story and is describing how, in a way, political life is a certain type of theater and a certain type of myth-making. And that's definitely true for Henry, right? And you can tell that that's also Shakespeare's view of it, because when the numbers are laid out and they're going to this triumphal battle in which they're grossly outnumbered by the French, and Henry's giving the St. Crispin's Day speech— and is laying out basically the idea that they will be legends if they win and will go down in in glory and that they're making a tough stand, but they have a chance to win and and win it all. And their honor will will stand tall for for generations to come. And then when you get the KIA death statistics, casualty statistics afterwards, it's like, well, about 10,000 Frenchmen died at about 5 in 20... Englishmen, plus a few nobles and a few page boys here and there. I mean, this is not realistic. And in fact, the chorus himself says, pardon the fact that we're rounding with some numbers and that we're playing (laughs) some games here to tell a good story. But that's what you folks are here and want to hear about, right? And he, he does it in a way that if you're a casual audience member, it probably goes right over your head. But when you actually see it in writing and when you actually think about what he's saying, it's all about sort of sculpting the set-piece battle with the knowledge that it's a set-piece battle and that there's going to be part of this is a national narrative that weaves together. I mean, and that's true even with Henry when he's wandering among the camp in disguise, right? To your point about uniting 
the estates and bringing a sense of harmony the king who can be comfortable with the people but is also comfortable with nobles and has the mm-hmm. toughness to get the job done so there is this idea of of sculpting henry as a ideal leader but what i think is fascinating about the play is shakespeare shows you that that's what he's doing and that this is not necessarily history in and of itself yeah well you know what will i think this is just too obvious an entree and into my big question for you which i think is probably going to take up the bulk of our conversation here honestly because i think there's one obvious and overwhelming question that from a critical perspective needs to be asked and also for you our political maven also takes on another dimension which is is henry a good king Mm. yeah and it's a complicated question because in this play and and at the end of this second tetralogy there's the question of whether he's a good king in terms of being a skilled leader and there's also the question of is he a good king in terms of being a a moral leader And I think the answer is more or less yes to the first, though with the qualification that Shakespeare is engaging in an act of myth-making and that Henry's progeny do not hold the throne in the future. So there's yes to the skilled. And then on the moral side, I think there's enough here where it's meant to be a little bit ambiguous. Those who want to interpret Henry as a hero and morally laudatory against the haughty and prideful French, you can certainly do that, but there's enough ambiguity that's thrown into the mix. But but to start with the skilled part, just think back to the other plays that are in this tetralogy. Richard II, a proud and legitimate, but out of touch and often his own world king, who's not very good at his job, very focused on royal prerogatives, doesn't really understand the nobles, let alone the common people. Henry IV, very Machiavellian, overthrew Richard, but always worried about his legitimacy, always trying to deal with conspiracies and coups and so forth. Even in those plays, you have Hotspur, the ennobled and bold and valorous military commander, but somebody who doesn't really think much of the politics of the matter, is solely thinking in terms of martial glory and avenging his honor. Falstaff, you know, a contrast in that play as well, more loved by the people, sort of a common man, even if he's a little bit dissolute, but also seedy, disreputable, and basically Hal, and now Henry V, he takes lessons from each of these people, and he does become skilled in various ways. That's my theory of the case for the the question of, is Henry a skilled leader? He learned from the past. He learned from each of these people that he came into contact with. So let's talk about this for a minute, because, you know, you you listed all those people, and, and one thing that really stood out to me, Will, and I think there is something that we should get into separately that I just want to flag now as a like a further element of this conversation, which is, I mean, I think we need to talk a little bit about just the nature of leadership, because I do think mm. that this play is kind of Shakespeare's thesis on the subject of what a leader is and should be, right? Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, one thing that really stuck out to me reading this play is that when you read the character of Henry V, at least to me, it seems like there is something of all of these other characters 
that he manifests, right? And he has learned something from Richard II. He's learned something from Hotspur. He's learned something from Falstaff. He's learned something from his father, Henry IV. And I think Hotspur and Falstaff are really the two most important of that group because Falstaff and Hotspur, as we discussed at length in our Henry IV Part One pod, I would say are both essentially nihilists and individualists. Hotspur in the way of seeking his own military glory and, you know, and ultimately his immortal fame, basically, and Falstaff in seeking his own, like, short-term hedonistic pleasure are both very individually focused. And you, you see in Henry both of those impulses, right? You see both, you know, the fewer men, the greater share of honor, which is almost a direct callback to mm-hmm. something that Hotspur says in Henry IV, Part One, And you similarly see how, or Henry V, talks about his soldiers, definitely in this like workaday way, right? I mean, he describes them as warriors for the working day, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily glistering or in, or in great arms, but nonetheless ennobled in, by their commitment to this cause. So it feels like he's taken both of their ideas about the world, both that martial valor and also the humanistic touch that we've talked about with Falstaff, Mm -hmm. and turned it into a more communal vision, you know, and that he's using that to unify his troops. And then similarly, he talks a lot about the burdens of leadership that Henry IV talks about. So Hal seems like he has absorbed all these lessons, and now he's marshalling them to advance Exactly, exactly. And I think that a crucial scene here is when he goes down to the campfires on the eve before St. Crispin's Day. And and even in the speech itself in St. Crispin's Day, where he's evoking this idea of brotherhood and any man, ere he be so vile, who fights with him today, is now his brother. Well, it's not entirely clear that he really believes that, you know, in the deepest sense. I mean, he's clearly the king. He's clearly the sovereign and the commoners are the commoners. But he also understands when he's talking to some of the men while in disguise at the campfire that they fear death, but they are willing to raise their courage and are able to achieve extraordinary things if properly motivated to do so. And in some ways, that cuts very much against the Hotspur bit and very much against the Falstaff bit. It's neither this obsessive, overweening desire for military glory that is nihilistic, as you put it, nor is it the self-seeking, corrupt, pleasure-pursuing figure of Falstaff. So there is this ennobling of regular people, but you also see... Even among his noble cousins, some of the, the nobles, uh, Westmoreland and Exeter, who fight alongside him in the battle, who he's urging on and uh, want to lead the vanguard and so forth, you can see how he has good rapport with them as well. And he can negotiate in difficult diplomacy with his rival at the end of the day. So in many respects, he's firing in all cylinders. So, so, Will, on the subject of the stuff you're talking about in the Crispin's Day speech, and, and I think you see it more than just there, but I wouldn't say that it's even working against the philosophies of Hotspur and Falstaff, right? You know, yes, he recognizes that his common soldiers fear death, and he's marshalling that rhetoric of Hotspur of immortal glory, 
right? That this day till the ending of the world will be remembered, right? So it's like, you know, they'll have died in a great cause, but also the ones who come safe home will be able to tell tales of their exactly. exploits and live better, right? So exactly. what, what he's done, I think, is he's just taken those philosophies, but rather than letting them be this self-serving thing, mm-hmm. he's turning them into either you'll die and you'll have died in this great cause and you'll be remembered for that and you'll be honored for that, or you'll go home and, you're, and you'll live your life to old age and you'll be honored for your service here, right? So exactly. it's... Now, it may be cynical, you know, in the sense that his delivery of it, you know, his motivation for saying these things may be cynical, right? Because that may be the way that he's going to get people to fight for him. But the vision of it is compelling, I think. Yeah, I think perhaps, you know, and I, I think the play has some of Shakespeare's cynical streak about politics, but perhaps even the best way of thinking about this with the speech in particular is... Manipulation. Manipulation can be positive. It can be negative. It can involve a variety of inducements. I mean, almost any type of rhetoric that's persuasive in any measure is a little bit manipulative of the audience if you're sort of firing on logos, ethos, and pathos and trying to make these arguments. I think to your point, the brilliance here is Hotspur would be incapable of making a speech that either considered life after the battle as people age and grow old. Hotspur is like Achilles. He only really is going to be carried out on his shield, or not at all, right? He's pursuing honor and his honor. It doesn't actually really matter to him how other people factor into that, even if they're fighting by his side. It's all about the glorious deeds of Harry Hotspur. Mm -hmm. And then for Falstaff, he would never make a speech like this or a speech at all, because he's not really interested in calling forth higher motivations from people, right? He's interested in wheedling them to engage in petty schemes. He's interested in conning them. Uh, Henry V... And he's interested in eating capons. And he's interested in eating capons and drinking drinking, uh, Drinking port and Madeira and fine mead and dry sack sherry. But by the same token, he's he's not really interested in motivating anyone. He doesn't have anything to offer anybody. And and Hotspur doesn't really either. Hotspur is concerned about the glory of Hotspur. And Falstaff is concerned about the pleasure of Falstaff. But the speeches bring together speaking to these different understandings, these different value systems. And I would say Henry is Henry is kind of brilliant at doing this throughout, almost preternaturally so. I mean, look, he's definitely, more than anyone else, definitely that we've seen at least, he is fully aware of and fully in command of the power of rhetoric to achieve his aims, right? Or, or to achieve, to arouse the reaction that he wants. Mm-hmm. And so he's very aware of uh, and successful at the theatrical aspects of kingship yes and of politics right and i think it's very interesting that you're you know you can see him sort of modulating what he's saying for each moment Mm -hmm. right and shakespeare of course is very good in this of transferring between the very high rhetoric of verse against the prose that he's engaged in with the common people, the the like <laughs> absurdly high flown language of threat when he's talking with or negotiating with the French versus the bumbling aspect that he puts on when he's trying to woo Catherine, which is like completely 
unbelievable for someone who's such a great speechmaker, right? Exactly. So he, more than any other character that we've seen so far in Shakespeare, is in command of language as a tool to achieve his ends. Yes, and he also understands the ideas behind those rhetorical appeals and what they mean. And I would say Henry allows himself to be carried along by these claims that he should actually be the rightful king of France, right? He realizes on some level there's a unifying prospect of going on this war of conquest, stoking national fervor. He's also offended, of course, by the Dauphin's insult, but he also realizes that legitimacy is actually quite a powerful thing, and you can't just cast it aside, even if it is to some degree a fiction. And then thinking of his father, his father did cast that aside and dealt with perpetual problems. He learns from his father that you have to be a little bit Machiavellian, and you have to be able to scheme with the best of them to hold on to power. And ideally, you're melding a little bit of the knowledge of legitimacy, the importance of legitimacy, and the actual skill at the exercise of power while you're sitting on the throne. So I think there's a question of leadership and what a leader should do. But then also, I think maybe it's not a question of is Hal a good king? Maybe it's is Hal the best king we could hope for? Or the best even, maybe let's even leave the question of monarchy out of it, right? Like, is this the best we can hope for as a political outcome for political leadership? So this is a complicated question because as we said at the outset of our discussion, Shakespeare is engaging in a bit of myth-making. So the map isn't really the territory. Even Shakespeare acknowledges in the play that this Henry V is not really the Henry V of history. But setting that aside, I do think that there's there's something important here about Henry being a leader who has learned from past experience, past mistakes, and has learned lessons from history in various ways. Now, of course, Shakespeare tips his hand to say that sometimes that's not even enough because every leader makes mistakes and every leader can be laid low by fortuna and contingency and that's more or less the note that the play ends on, saying that you know his, he's going to die and his son's going to take control and the country's going to fall apart. But I would say to, to answer the question directly, I think that Shakespeare is saying that Henry is a pretty good king within the expectations that you can have of politicians. That does not necessarily mean that he makes moral decisions. That does not necessarily mean that he is unself-interested or selfless, because he clearly depicts him as neither of those things. It does not necessarily even mean that politicians or political leaders are going to be honest. Henry is definitely not honest in all of his representations of himself, and that's not just in this play, but in the, the previous plays as well. But you definitely want to live in a country ruled by a Henry V as opposed to a Henry IV, a Richard II, a Henry VI, or a Richard III, God forbid. Henry V is pretty much the best of all possible worlds in the context of the history that Shakespeare is working in. Yeah, there's something here to me, and you can tell me if you disagree, but there is something here to me in which it feels like 
there is a challenge to the very idea that you could have a moral political leader because the choices that you have to make and the things you have to do to achieve cohesion and to achieve success from the perspective of the political community as a whole almost seem to run counter to what is expected of moral individuals, mm-hmm. right? And this, this, so this is something that I, I've been thinking a lot about in relation to Falstaff for sure, but also in relation to Henry's behavior in this play, right? Where there's several times, and in fact, it's very interesting. Uh, it's in that, I think in that first scene where Bardolph, Pistol, and Nim are all talking and then mistress quickly comes out and says that Falstaff's dying and one of the you know one of these other three says something about how basically how Henry broke Falstaff's heart and treated him poorly but then also says oh he's a good king <laughs> you know <laughs> and then later on there's the scene where Bardolph is caught stealing something from a church in France mm-hmm. right and he is condemned to die by I think it's the Duke of Exeter but by whatever nobles under under his command and there's an appeal made to Henry on his behalf and Henry says no he has to be hanged Mm -hmm. and I bring up that moment specifically even though it seems like a small moment in the play because it just struck me how it seems incredibly inhuman of Henry to condemn to die this man who we've seen him hanging out with for the two previous plays right Mm -hmm. He's, he's basically his buddy and yet at the same time, you know, what went through my mind was like, well, if this was our political leader today, if this was a political leader today and someone that he was associated with was found to have stolen money or to have abused his position or abused his friendship with the president or whoever it is, then in fact, we would want the person in authority to be more harsh on that person than he would be on, you know, a random criminal you know yeah yeah so i don't know what do you, what do you think about that do you think well, do you think, think i'm getting at anything here or yeah no no absolutely i think i think leaders have obligations and are also by the very virtue of the the type of person that seeks leadership or is cultivated for leadership of this kind meaning being a hereditary monarch of a rather violent medieval state you're going to be selecting for people that are going to make tough decisions and are going to be a little bit more comfortable with making some of these tough decisions when the gauntlet gets thrown down. I think the Bardolph thing is really important decision because it shows that Hal is willing to value justice over just mercy for former cronies. I think that's a very important thing for leaders to try and set out to do that doesn't necessarily mean that mercy has no place under a king or a political leader Mm -hmm. but that you can't be doing it in a way that indicates corruption and self-dealing similarly there's a question here that goes beyond i think that there are decisions that leaders sometimes make whether it's being for something before they were against it having various convenient political arguments and fictions, voting uh, some way on a bill when their real opinion is different, cutting backroom deals. There's a certain level of political artifice that is inherent sometimes in being effective. Mm-hmm. You know, not in every case, but in, in many cases, that's a distinct tool of politicians that 
in regular society, we tend not to admire, right? Because we tend to admire people that are honest and straightforward in their dealings. And politicians, because they're dealing with power and powerful interests, they are not necessarily making calculations for the same reasons. And we can get into the ethics of that, but they have different considerations sometimes when they're given these responsibilities. And you can use it for good or for ill. But there's another question here that gets into the the question of morality and Henry, because I think that there are obviously moral and ethical boundaries in which a leader can and should and must operate to be moral and to be a truly great leader of the first order, right? Henry makes some decisions that are rather plainly unnecessary. So the Bardolph hanging... He's definitely making an example of Bardolph. We can discuss whether the punishment really fits the crime or not. But if that's the punishment that's commonplace, he's making an example of him, and that's that's to serve a point. It's the pretext to go to war when he could be reigning at home and cultivating a prosperous island kingdom and defending the parts of France that he still has control over, and his decision to execute the prisoners that both raise other moral questions, because neither of those are strictly speaking necessary. Now, we can discuss whether or not they're permissible under some circumstances, but that raises a different set of questions, so, right? Yeah, so let's get into the, the war aspect of it first, only because I find myself more interested in it for certain mm-hmm. ways or for certain reasons. So I think I, I have two main observations about this, Will. One of these is a kind of meta-textual thing, right? Which is me thinking about Shakespeare writing, which is that I, I feel like Shakespeare writing in, you know, 1600, which I think is when this play was written, or, you know, 1599, whatever, mm-hmm. obviously has a different perspective about warfare and justifications for warfare and, like, morality of warfare than we do today, right? And something that occurred to me as I was thinking about this question was if you think about it from Shakespeare's perspective, just seen in terms of the plays that we've read, right? Like if you're Shakespeare looking back, the kings during the Hundred Years' War who did not prosecute the war with France were Richard II and Henry VI. Mm. Literally the two most terrible kings in this period in English history that I think most people would agree were the most terrible kings, even aside from the war with France, were the two that were actively trying to not prosecute the war with France. So I think when you think about that fact, it brings it more into light why this, you know, Mm -hmm. why at that time one might be more sympathetic to the kings who are, you know, prosecuting this war. Yeah, yeah. And it's a unifying project. And that's that's the other thing. And that that also has to do with Shakespeare's views on these things, right? Which is, I'm sure you remember the very ending monologue of King John, where the bastard's final lines in King John are, this England never did nor never shall lie at the proud foot of a conqueror, but when it first did help to wound itself, now these her princes are come home again, come the three corners of the world in arms, and we shall shock them. Not shall make us rue if England to itself do rest but true. Right. And in that play, of course, as we discussed when we did it, there's division within the kingdom and that allows for the French to invade and much chaos erupts from there. 
I think throughout we see that there's this utility of having the foreign enemy, and that's what unites the nation. And crucially, when the when the nation's not united against the foreign enemy is when it's divided against itself. Right. All of which is to say, I, I think if we're going to talk about the justification for the war, I'm inclined to think that it, like while we can talk about that and it's an interesting subject in, from a 21st century perspective, I feel like it just doesn't really matter that much to Shakespeare. Right. Like the point is that the country needs to be unified. And if that means prosecuting this war that maybe there's doing, not a great justification for like that's cost of doing not, business yeah, yeah exactly yeah so i think that that's largely true i mean i do think that there's differences you could go to war against some foe that you really have no i mean at least at least france and england have been fighting wars and have genuine territorial disputes in this play regardless of the specious claims to the throne and everything else, right? There's legitimate reason for them to be at odds, and in fact, they are. The Dauphin is insulting Henry, and all of that's based on genuine geopolitical rivalry. Mm -hmm. All that's true. There's other versions of this where you concoct some enemy that really has nothing to do with you and make it a unifying project. And I think that's a difference in degree where it, it sort of starts shading into just straight up unethical and immoral use of war for diversionary wag the dog type stuff. And that's definitely not good. But yeah, I, I, and the other thing I would say to your point though, I mean, Shakespeare does want you to know in one of the funniest scenes in the play where the archbishop is making a speech that the reasons and the justification are somewhat ridiculous and yes. that this is the yes. pretext but it is a it is very much a pretext it is not necessarily a persuasive justification and so i i agree with you that he's not terribly concerned about that it's not necessarily a first order concern the justice of the war despite the fact that henry walks around before that whole scene saying, well, it has to be for a just reason, and he has the just reason basically thrown at him and just takes it no matter how absurd it mm -hmm. is. But I, I would agree with you, it's not the primary area of interest. But then you jump from what military ethicists and just war theory you know, talks about, it, the justness of your cause, to the justness of your conduct. And that raises other interesting questions with Henry's behavior, both at Harfleur and with the prisoners. And there are some ambiguities here, but certainly threatening to murder and murder the infants and rape all of the women within Harfleur is definitely not great. Yeah. And so also I think... played, but also played against the final scene, right? Where literally he is going to physically take possession of the princess to end the war and end the territorial dispute. So there's just, there's an interesting element there of the bloodthirstiness with which he's raising his, you know, hue and cry during the battle scenes. Uh, look, the Harfleur scene, I, I think th that scene is interesting also because there's a question of performance to me. Mm -hmm. Like, he's making threats, but he's not... Uh, I actually think that the the question of cutting the throats of the Frenchmen, uh, you know, at Agincourt is maybe more to your point than, than that, because Henry is trying to achieve a military end through rhetoric at Harfleur. 
and he succeeds and he sends his uncle or his brother or something into the town and then it's like we got to get to Calais because our army's all beaten up right I, the only other thing I would say about the Harfleur thing is that the the law of war as it existed in the 1400s was very different from the law of war today. And I, I believe, a listener can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that basically the order of the day with sieges was you gave the town the opportunity to surrender. They said if they were going to surrender or not. If they surrendered, then they got to keep their stuff and you didn't hurt them. And if they didn't surrender, then you got to do whatever you wanted to them once the city fell. Right. So I, I don't think that what's happening or what he's threatening in that scene is actually that out of step with the accepted military conduct. of No, that that's era. that's that's right. But I also do think that there was sort of a norm against the wanton killing and rape and pillage of noncombatants. It's not necessarily that you're wrong about siege warfare or the conventions around that entirely, but it's a dangerous game for people to play right when you're urging your men no matter how much you're exhorting them to go in and do that i think that's my only point there is that he's he's taking some he's playing with fire and he plays with it to good effect but there is a sort of bloodthirstiness that you know i'm not sure that it's entirely honestly for rhetorical effect i think it's easy for us to interpret it that way but, right. Well, we can interpret it that way only because it doesn't happen. It doesn't right? happen. Yeah. And I think it's that's successful the, in, in achieving its aim, if that right. is indeed the aim. Right. The, I think that's the, the conundrum in some ways, is we've seen Shakespeare depict wanton butchery in a very negative light previously, particularly of people that are perceived to be innocent. So I, I do think he's leaving it out there for you to interpret it in the light that you're talking about, certainly, is rhetorical exhortation. But it's also going to sit, I think, a little bit uneasily at the same time if you're if you're watching this uh, being performed. Now, of course, if you're actually just like an Elizabethan theater goer, you're probably cheering as the French are, you know, threatened with all sorts of wanton cruelty. So uh, what's, well, what's interesting, Will, it's, I don't think it's just you know, the the groundlings down in the theater are are cheering, right? I think one of the really interesting things about this play and about this moment in particular is that Shakespeare writes a lot of really stirring military speeches in this play. And I think part of what's really disturbing and interesting about it is the way that it makes us as readers and I think particular as theater goers or movie watchers, you know, makes us excited about something that if we were to just like read about dispassionately we might be horrified by Mm -hmm. you know and i think that goes to shakespeare's broader project and like success as an artist of putting us as readers into uncomfortable psychological positions of you know whether that be with shylock sympathizing with a villain or whether it be this excited about this like bloodthirsty stuff you know i I think that is actually a kind of a hallmark of his what's successful in his work yeah to that very point i think that you're meant to experience these speeches in a variety of ways and there's a reason why the later parts of the Harfleur speech are not the best-known parts of this play and are not oft-quoted when you want to rally the troops, right? Mm -hmm. I think that he does mean to complicate, in some ways, your vision of these moments, regardless of the conventions of the day and the norms of the day and 
how they may or may not be observed more in the more in the in the breach than in the the observance and so on and so forth. But yeah. that also raises another question, which we'll just briefly talk about, which is the execution of the French prisoners, which raises a fascinating conduct of war question too. Because literally he's doing it at first for military expediency, because he does not have enough men to fight the French that are attacking him. And killing the prisoners relieves those men of having to guard them, and they can go and fight on the front line. Later, he does it just as a reprisal for the killing of the pages, which is also an interesting thing. And there are people who have interpreted these tactics as legitimate, but there are also many people who have interpreted them as uh, barbaric uh, over the course of history. So that's also another fascinating instance of watching Henry's reactions and and behavior. And I'm not saying that Shakespeare is necessarily 100% condemning the decision either. It's just one that notably sticks out. Because again, when you surrender, that's supposed to, even back then, that was supposed to signify something under these circumstances. It's definitely the only true instance of wanton cruelty committed by Henry in the play, right? If I'm not mistaken, at least. I'm pretty sure it is. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know, and I guess it's just a question of how it gets played, right? If it is a expression of real anger when the boys in the English camp get killed, or if it's if it's meant to be bloodthirsty, or if it's meant to be instrumental in some way. Mm-hmm. I guess I kind of feel like your opinion about it is going to be based on your opinion about Henry more broadly, mm-hmm. right? I think it's... Uh, I, I think if you're basically a fan of Henry, then you're going to say it's the cost of doing business. And if you're, you know, much more on the ambivalent side and you view this as an unjust war, then you're going to say Henry's a war criminal, right? And I think that's almost maybe more interesting than to ask what mm-hmm. Shakespeare himself thinks about it, right? Because I, I guess, the, to me, the point that I draw out of it, and again, I guess this just goes to show like the things that I'm interested in or think about in these plays or my biases, but to me, what it seemed to point out is that ultimately we're extremely psychologically and philosophically flexible mm-hmm. towards the things that we want to be true, right? Yeah. So if you want Henry to be a moral great leader, then you're going to view this as a military necessity, right? If you want Henry to be a war criminal, or if you want his cause to be unjust, then you're going to view this as a wanton act of unnecessary violence. So, and to that point, and as a uh, chaser before we move on to our final topic, I just wanted to note that back in 2010, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Samuel Alito, both justices in the Supreme Court, heard a mock trial over both the case for war that Henry engages in and whether it's a just war under international law and whether the execution of the prisoners was a war crime or not. And if I recall, they were divided on the first question of whether the war was just or not, didn't come to a resolution, but they found, uh, and people can look this up, they found that the execution of the prisoners was unambiguously bad, though I don't know exactly which standards they applied. So interesting, interesting little footnote, and not the first time that there's been a mock trial of Henry V for uh, war crimes in the, sure. in recent years. So interesting, interesting stuff for sure. So Will, I, I think we've covered a lot. Look, frankly, there's there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about in this play. 
I think we've, frankly, we, we've kind of only scratched the surface. But before we close out, I think one thing that, since this is a podcast and we are an audio medium, frankly, Will, this play has just some of the best shit we've gotten in Shakespeare, speech-wise. So I just wanted us to take a few minutes to talk about our favorite soliloquies and speeches in this play. Will, what do you got? So... Obviously, St. Crispin's Day is amazing, but the passage that I actually let's, love... Let's, well, let's, look, I think St. Crispin's Day kind of goes without saying. I, I feel like we should put it to the side because... Yeah. But Too let's obvious. just play it. We got to play it. Got to yeah. play St. Crispin's Day. Yes. It is a fearful odds. Oh, that we now had here. But one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today... What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? Oh, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Brother. Proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispin's. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now are bed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that thought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! All right, done. Tell me more. So, I would say that my favorite speech, other than St. Crispin's Day, is actually the chorus's opening lines, which invite the audience, the theater goers, to understand what the dramatic enterprise is, 
to prepare their eyes and imaginations for the stage, which was often very sparingly adorned in Shakespeare's time. So you really did have to engage in acts of imagination. It's just an incredibly powerful speech, and it's an ode to the power of theater and the dramatic imagination and the enterprise of drama involving all of the players and the director and the playwright. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon. And let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. What is your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping all times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass? For the wits to fly, admit me, chorus to this history. Who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray. Gently to hear, kindly to judge. Our play! Well, let me ask you one question about this, because this is this was on my shortlist as well. And I was thinking about it, I'm like, I, I feel like all the other speeches in this play have some dramatic moment or they fit into the dramatic context in some way. This play is literally just the chorus saying, you gotta imagine that things are happening, right? Like, what what is it about this that is so effective, do you think? So I think part of it is just the language, pure and simple. I mean, it's beautifully written. I think almost all of the speeches here, there's almost not a word out of place. It's very rich in that sense. I think what's powerful about this particular speech, though, is Shakespeare doesn't really use choruses in most of his work, unlike a lot of other dramatists of the day, and certainly in classical drama, they use them all the time. But Shakespeare doesn't really break the fourth wall in this way, where it's not just a character talking to the audience, like Richard III, it's almost the voice of the playwright himself. And of course, in the chorus's case, if it's channeling Shakespeare, it's a slightly sardonic voice too, because at the end of each chorus passage throughout the play, at the beginning of each act, there's a little bit of a juxtaposition based on what the chorus is talking about. Not so much in this case, but in some of the others, you hear these odes to the manliness and virtues of the English youth, and then you see a bunch of dissolute groundling types hanging out 
Uh, you see all of these different moments. In oh, the even here, right? I mean, he starts off talking about all this lofty stuff about two mighty monarchies being opposed. Cut to two priests yeah. in it's Canterbury or in Westminster talking about some legislation that they're afraid isn't going to go their way. <laughs> right? Yes, yes. It's like World War Two the height of good and evil, the greatness of martial valor to cut clerical conspiracy to avoid having your property confiscated. (laughs) It's pretty epic in that sense too. So there is a sort of, what I love is I guess it preserves an element of what I think Shakespeare's voice is in a much more direct way than a lot of the other things that you read because he's frequently using characters to voice maybe his sentiments and explore them. But this is a case where he's literally talking about the business of the theater and also choosing to do it in a way that reveals a sardonic sense of humor and uh, maybe not a cynicism, but a slightly jaded and jaundiced eye towards a lot of the foibles of humanity. And that's that's what I love about this one. I, I think it's a great choice, and I'm, I'm a big fan as well. What about you, James? What's your, what's your standout of the bunch? Well, there's just so many. There's so many to choose from. I ended up kind of surprising myself actually so i've let me just say i've always been a big fan of the tennis ball speech at the beginning (laughs) but that is actually not my choice the the one i chose actually occurs very shortly after the saint crispin's day speech henry is just given this rousing speech inspiring the troops and then the herald from the french comes and basically says look, you're definitely going to lose. There's like no way you're going to lose. Are you sure you don't want to surrender? So this is his speech in response to the Herald basically saying, no, go after yourself. Like, we're going to fight this out. Once more, I come to know, thee, King Harry, if for thy ransom thou wilt now compound before thy most assured overthrow. Who hath sent thee now? The Constable of France. I pray thee bear my former answer back. Bid them achieve me and then sell my bones. God, God! Why should they mock poor fellows thus? Let me speak proudly. Tell the constable we are but warriors for the working day. Our gayness and our guilt are all besmirched with rainy marching in the painful field. But by the mass, our hearts are in the trim. Herald, save thou thy labor. Come thou no more for ransom, gentle herald. They shall have none, I swear, but these my joints, which, if they have as I shall leave them them, shall yield them little. Tell the constable. I shall, King Harry. Yeah, so if you were in the audience for that one, James, what would your reaction be if you were a man-at-arms or one of the nobles who are standing by hearing Henry lay this out? Because part of what Henry's saying here is, not only are we not surrendering, I'm not paying ransom for any of my men to survive this battle. Like, we're going in against overwhelming odds. What's your What's your reaction to it? So... Right, so we, we've had the St. Christmas Day speech, and that's very airy and theoretical. And, and it's... Look, it's one of the great pieces of rhetoric in Shakespeare. I think what's happening in this speech, you know, in the context that you're describing is like, what you want is your leader to be like, we're in it and I'm leading the way, right? And I think, (laughs) right, it's not my soldiers are warriors for the working day, right? It's 
why should they mock poor fellows thus? We are but warriors for the working day. Our gain is and our guilt mm-hmm. are besmirched. Our hearts are in the trim. This is really doing the work of that kind of national unity, I think, that we were talking about, right? Where yeah. it's not just my guys are going to fight you and they're going to fight to the end, right? It's mm-hmm. my men are going to fight, but I'm going to lead them and I'm going to be in the thick of that fight. So, and this maybe gets to a, an interesting point, right? Which is where I think, again, to the Falstaff and Hotspur dichotomy that I think Henry kind of effectively reconciles in a way, right? Where it's not that people just want to be safe at home in their beds, right? Like people want to be, in Shakespeare's conception at least, like they want to be involved in these great causes and they like they want to be doing something bigger than themselves, mm-hmm. but they want it to feel worthy or to feel that what they're doing is valued, right? And and that I think is what I would get if I was in the audience or in the ranks of archers staring down my last moments at this battle was that, yes, like perhaps he's the king, perhaps he's got this great privilege or he's got all the benefits of having people tell him that he's in charge of us or whatever. But at the end of the day, he's presenting himself as sharing in the dangers and the grittiness and the horrors of of battle. And I I think that's what makes it work. I don't know. What what do you think? I think that's right. And I actually love the pivot of we are but warriors for the working day. Our gayness and our guilt are all besmirched. To your point, the we, the our, the sense of a, a corporal kind of effort, unity, he's one of the men. I also love the pivot at the end where he says, and to your point about the archers, this just makes it even better, says, Harold, save thou thy labor. Come thou no more for ransom, gentle Harold. They shall have none, I swear, but these my joints. Where he's effectively saying, joints being a term for bolts and arrows, essentially, um, Mm -hmm. in the slang of the day, saying that, we're going to be firing at you and you can try and appeal to my wealth to buy my way out of this personally, the, Oh, I have the power to end this, but I'd rather go down with the men fighting personally. So it's the, we, but there's also the, he is of this different station, but he's willing to go all the way down to die and have his bones moldering in a field in France, despite his elevation and ability to save himself and, Possibly and, his men, but certainly himself. He has that ability, absolutely, and he refuses to do so and revs up the troops in the process. So I like that. And uh, let, let me say, let me say, Will, uh, on this point, I, I guess for me personally, and I, I'm interested to hear your, your feeling about this, and maybe this is why ultimately I, I gravitate towards this speech. I think for me personally, this does kind of answer the question or is the most important comment or most important answer of the question of is how the best we can hope for, right? Because ultimately, yes, this might be rhetoric and he's the master of rhetoric and we don't know when he, you know, when he's being serious and when he's not really. I mean, it kind of depends on how you play it. But at the end of the day, he does defy the French. He does say, we would not seek a battle as we are, nor as we are. We say we will not shun it. (laughs) Like, yes, there is the performance. There is the rhetoric. There is his knowledge of how he's manipulating people. But when it comes down to it, he is participating in the battle. It's not like in Edward III, where Edward III is like standing up on the hill watching the Black Prince. Like, if he dies, he dies. (laughs) He is there. He's saying we're going to fight. And then he is fighting. And, And I guess, like, ultimately, I do feel like in this play, Henry does seem to, in the end, 
back up his words with actions. To be willing to die and be buried in an unnamed grave alongside your men is probably about as good as you could hope for if you're a soldier in that army. So yes, to your point, manipulation, artifice, but also a great deal of sincerity where it counts. Yeah. So on that note, James, where do you rank this one? in the pantheon and we can talk mvps though i think there are some pretty obvious choices here so this is this has been an interesting one for me i actually i don't usually read our plays twice will before we record and this one i did so i read the first like the first three acts basically or first two and a half acts i read and i was like wow this play is incredible <laughs> he, like he is just killing it in this one And then I kind of got bogged down, and I think it had to do both with my expectations of the play, right? Like, this being the one play that I think I was pretty familiar with. But also, like, the way I was reading it, I was sort of stepping away and coming back, and, like, it wasn't consistent. Mm -hmm. So I I reread it again this morning. And I I guess ultimately, also, what I'm saying is, like, I was really expecting to read this and be like, this is the best. This is number one. And ultimately, for me, it didn't quite get there. I think I still would say that I think Henry the Fourth one probably remains for me in that dialectic between Falstaff and Hotspur mixed with I think a great plot mixed with Hal who's also who's still a great character even in that play mixed with the meditations of Henry the Fourth I think to me that still is so far the pinnacle of Shakespeare of what we've read so far then my number two number three are Richard III and Romeo and Juliet. This plays definitely in that conversation. Ultimately, I I rank it number two. I think it's close to Richard III. I think they're close to being on par. Mm -hmm. But I think this play, and and really why I think I give this one the edge, is this play gains even more in performance, right? I think it's great on the page, and I think when you see it performed, it is the kind of like great read, great experience it's that like the movie that's both incredibly fun to watch and has real substance to it. And so, whereas I think Richard III also is that, but I think Richard III is a little bit one more one note th- than this play. So it's my number two. And I think there's no doubt that Henry V is the MVP of this play. What do you think? So it's a tough one. And I faced a similar set of trade-offs between this one and Henry IV, part one. And I had a similar reaction reading it, uh, which is that aspects of it are fantastic. It really sucks you in. But there isn't the same dramatic arc and the same dialectic that you mention in Henry V. And you really have to appreciate the prior plays in some ways to fully get everything out of Henry V that's there, but it also can be quite enjoyable and stand alone. I mean, I do think, to your point, again, so much depends on staging. Even the battle scenes do not have stage direction and are not even, it's at basically at the discretion of the director how much of the battle scenes they even want to show, whereas in the other plays, there's blocking and directions and people coming on and off and sword fights. Very little of that is actually in this play. So, so much really does depend on the performance and the the context. I don't know. I, at the end of the day, I think Henry IV Part One I think, is a better piece of drama and has the potential for better, truly human performances. But the language of this play and some of the themes therein make it competitive with that and in some ways, I think, actually exceed 
Henry the Fourth Part One. I don't really know. It's close. It's close with Richard the Third, Henry the Fourth Part One. I think I'm going to give it the number one ranking because of the quality of the writing and because there's so much great stuff in here. But as a piece of drama, I don't know. In some ways, this is kind of the epic trade-off that I always make between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Both fantastic movies. Raiders is probably the superior work of filmmaking at the end of the day, but Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade is the one I return to watch just as much and have lots of fond memories of and is a sentimental favorite. All of this is a very long way of saying I think I'm going to put Henry V at number one and Henry V at MVP. Look, it's not the choice that I made, Will, but I respect it. I respect the ranking for sure. The sanctity of the rankings, as we both know, is immaculate and carved on stone to be handed down to future generations with no revision. Will, this is an important decision and like I... I completely respect the thought that went into it, and I I also respect the trade-offs you're talking about because I experienced them myself. Indeed. So, Will, before we conclude today, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Yes, I do. I have been listening to Andrew Roberts' biography of Winston Churchill, uh, which is Walking with Destiny. I had not read much about Winston Churchill, obviously knew plenty about him. I've read various articles, you know, shorter pieces, things on World War II. But if you want to talk about a figure who I believe had some role, actually, in commissioning the Laurence Olivier version of Henry V during the end of World War II, 1944, and just lived an epic life that is never boring and will always keep you going, this is a great book to delve into that controversial and singular figure in 20th century history. Will, give us the title one more time. That's Andrew Roberts, Churchill Walking with Destiny. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, Will will be humoring me as I get way, way too enthusiastic about the historical Roman dictator Julius Caesar, even though he barely appears in the inaccurately titled play, Julius Caesar. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.